0: Everybody, we are very thankful that you're here with us this evening, and I thought we would start the sessions with Nate off with asking Nate some questions. So I have four questions for you, Nate, if you'll come on up here on the platform with me, and uh, just quick questions, things just a little bit about you, and uh, maybe some other things that we kind of need to know about you that will be very helpful for us. So.
1: And let's point out this is opposite of the uh, <coughs> typical RZIM format where we do questions at the end so you guys are real trend breakers. Here.
0: Yeah, yeah. We're, these are these are hopefully are a little bit lighter than maybe the questions you'll get later as well. Um and and these are quick quick answers. So, give us the um names and ages of your children, the name of your spouse, not her age, but perhaps how many years you've been married.
1: Sure. Um we'll get the microphone going here. Yeah, it's working.
0: Sometimes it's, you can mute it here, but I'll try it. No, I don't
1: think that's, it doesn't say mute. (laughs) There. How about now? Yeah? You can hear a little? Okay. Okay. I usually, I do a lot of speaking at silent retreats, and uh, (laughs) that's... Sometimes that carries over into the so. Anyway, um, so my children: Madeline, Joseph, Thaddeus, and David seven, five, three, and uh, six months. My wife's name is Aaron, and we've been married ten years, so we're still in the honeymoon phase. But um, okay, yeah. great, great.
0: So, um, how did you get involved
1: in RZIM? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, the, I mean, the real reason is is because God has a sense of humor. Um, the the, ch- the other reason is is that I was, after I finished my undergrad, I was busy at a church uh, working for Bridgewater College in the admissions office, and Ravi had been speaking on some podcast about something called the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, and a couple people who knew me but didn't know each other had been listening to that and heard about it and contacted me and said, hey, we heard about this thing, and just knowing what we know about you, we think you'd be a, a great fit for that. Um, and so that was kind of an odd enough thing that I thought, well, I'll look into it. I uh, figured there's no way that'll work out. But anyway, applied, got in, and all of that, the doors opened up to do that. And then about um, halfway through my year doing the, the Oxford program, which is based out of RZIM's European headquarters in Oxford, um, I, all, they were all tra- training to be apologists and evangelists and that sort of thing. And I said, you know what, this is great that you guys are doing this, but um, I'm going to go back to the States and focus on the local church. There are people lined up on pews all over North America that have these questions. Um, actually, the church needs to deal with some of this first. So I uh, went to seminary for a year in Texas after that. And then after that year, RZIM called up and said, hey, we have this uh, new program that we're thinking about starting in Boston, and we think you're the guy to do it. And I said, that's a terrible idea, and here are all the reasons. Uh, but they're very persuasive speakers. And uh, <laughs> so <laughs> after, after two weeks of a discernment process, uh, my wife and I then moved to Boston where I started working for RZIM <laughs> along with uh, a now friend of ours, Alicia Wood. And so we kind of pioneered a, a, what was called a fellows program for RZIM at that point. And then uh, after two years, they said, well, why don't you continue doing this? So uh, that'll be seven years this fall.
0: Okay, great, great. What book would you recommend, other than the Bible that each young person should read before the age of 18. Ooh. Now, he did not hear these questions ahead of time. Yeah. So these, so, and if you don't have an answer, that's fine. But just, you know, for those of us that have teenagers or those that have younger children, like, if you could just mm-hmm. pick one book that you'd like every young person to read before they turn 18, what, what might that be?
1: Yeah. Um, it, some of these, this might sound a little bit heavy. Um, one that, one that pops into my mind would be um, The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. Um, and that's a, that'd be, (laughs) it's a bigger theological book than, but a lot of teenagers do read big books. Um, and so I wouldn't put that past, but I think anything that helps us connect our faith to every element and aspect of our lives, that we would be able to see the continuity of what we believe permeating every level of it, um, that, uh, some of that line of thinking I think is very helpful. Um, it's hard for me to, to narrow it down. I treat most theologians and thinkers like I treat a grocery store, um, All of them have helpful, nutritious things in them. Many of them have things I would never buy, and a lot of them have stuff I can produce better on my own. Um, So anytime that I recommend somebody, it's not a wholesale stamp of approval. But there have been some thinkers, I think, that um, the other thing that I've found really encouraging, and I know this is deviating, but um, Christian biographies are super um, impactful and helpful to look at what God can do with Mm. a faithful life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe if you have a young person and you're looking at kind of the trajectory of their life, finding somebody who's been a faithful Christian um, with a similar experience, there can be a very encouraging and grounding thing for, for that person.
0: Okay, great. One last question. If the Dallas Cowboys were playing the Philadelphia <laughs> Eagles yeah. and you had to root for one team, which one would it be?
1: So let's see, exits are there. and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, I so so as a, so here's here's the truth. I'll tell you the truth. The truth is, I grew up cheering for the Cowboys, because where I grew up, everybody hated the Redskins so bad that they cheered for the Cowboys, and so people didn't really you you cheered for the Cowboys to not like the Redskins. So that okay. was kind of the, the ethos that I grew up in. Okay, um, but I have a lot of family in Pennsylvania, so I did end up cheering for the Eagles, probably in more games than than not.
0: So so, so your answer would be, yeah, the Eagles. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> Well, tonight will be our last night of the yeah. services, so hopefully you yeah. soak a lot in. So, well, thank yeah. you. Thank you. And uh, next, tomorrow night, we'll have uh, four more yeah. questions. Yeah, that's so great. That's I might great. even ask that last one again to see if I can get <laughs> yeah, an yeah. answer.
1: Multiple choice, two answers, we'll give you a second try. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, well, and it's interesting growing up in West Virginia, West Virginia has no professional sports teams, so West Virginia actually often does end up rooting for Pennsylvania teams uh, in all, all sorts of categories. So, um, Well, thanks again for coming out, and I'm looking forward to this topic and sharing some thoughts with you and then seeing the types of questions that you have in response to that. And this morning, uh, I started off kind of talking about the idea that very few people, when they say why they're Christians, answer because it's true, Uh, but that is a perfectly legitimate and valuable place to start. And the second odd response that I wish I heard more often um, is that if somebody asks Why are you a Christian? How many times have you heard somebody say, because it's fun? (laughs) Um, There's almost a a little bit of a weird, a world weariness that goes along with being, oh, I'm a Christian. Um, And I'm not using fun flippantly there, but I want to think about that question of the meaning of life and push into that in a way that really does extol some of the benefits of living a life that glorifies God and the pleasure of participating in the world in the way that he outlined it. And um, so that's the trajectory of where we want to go kind of as we're talking about meaning and responsibility um, and freedom this evening. In 2010, um, just right before our first anniversary, I had a job where I commuted to work by bike. And I was commuting, um, it was about seven miles, and I was uh, drafting off, uh, off of a, a friend of mine who was driving a Jeep. And we had just come through a uh, you know this is not going to end well. And um, <laughs> we just come through an intersection, and he sped up, and I was pedaling as hard as I could to kind of stay in that slipstream behind the Jeep because it was freezing cold, and it's warm there. There's no air resistance, and you can pedal like 30 miles an hour if you're right behind it. Uh, and somebody pulled out in front of him who hadn't scraped the ice off their windshield, and my tire went into I had my head down, so I didn't see it. And so at like 27 miles an hour, I went in the back of the Jeep, and I'm not sure if my face hit inside the spare tire or if my jaw caught on the ball hitch on his Jeep but it punched this section of my jaw out and drove this part, like, up into my skull, Um, and so I went flipping down the road, obviously, and there's a police officer coming the other way, and he called an ambulance, and it kind of got me rolled over so I wasn't choking on my blood, and um, my buddy came back, and he's like, ah, yeah, as you would, and uh, I said, hey, help me find my teeth, because when my jaw separated, and I ran my tongue around, I couldn't feel anything, and he's like, I don't see anything, man, I was like, don't don't worry, and so I remember, I was kind of in and out, and I remember saying what blood type I was, and where my insurance card was, and then, they got me in an ambulance and took me and put me in a helicopter, and um, flew me to the University of Virginia, and uh, they put my face back together and worked on my head, but it didn't really affect me, affect me, affect me, affect me any. And um, my, my brothers tell me that I preach like I've been hit in the head with a Jeep. Um, the, the other thing that they immediately said, man, if that's a $120,000 face, you should demand a refund. Uh, so you got to love your brothers. It's, I think they, they train doctors to say that's not so bad, right, to kind of calm the patient down. So I'm in a neck brace and all this, and my, I slid on my face. I just looked like I got hit in the head with a Jeep. And um, all the doctors and nurses are like, it's not so bad. And I remember my younger brother walking. He's like, you're messed up, dude. That's going to take a lot of work. To... So I have a titanium band from here to here. Um, with the beard and the titanium face, I can turn the other cheek all day. It's great. Um, but in the midst of that, my... <laughs> um, and there are a lot of funny things that happened in that. I, I had my jaw wired shut for six weeks over Thanksgiving. Adds a whole another definition to turkey in the straw and all the other kind of things that I had to do to try to <laughs> eat. But um, I had the most fun that you could, I guess, in that situation. And in the, in the immediate aftermath of that, my throat started swelling because my helmet strap had hit me right in the voice box and I could breathe but I couldn't talk. And so I'm strapped with no clothes on to a board and my mother-in-law walks in who is a nurse and I don't know what this is not bedside manner one oh one. I'm guessing, but uh, I motioned for a piece of paper so I could write, and I wrote. Everybody was sure I was dead, and I'm like, I'm, I was feeling more optimistic. That's a good thing about being in, in you know, in UVA in intensive care is like that guy has a shotgun wound and that guy. Well, I'm doing all right, you know. Um, I'm going to live, and my face might look funny for the rest of life. But so I took a piece of paper and I wrote on the on the paper ask me a question, any question. And my mother-in-law said, what is the purpose of life? (laughs) So I wrote with my hand strapped to my side to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Ask me a hard one. (laughs) And she looked at that and she looked at the doctor and said, he's going to be okay. (laughs) And, uh, and walked off. But, uh, I wouldn't recommend doing that ever again if you can, you can help it. But that's a fascinating question that she asked, and I want to push into that just for a little bit of what is the purpose of life. One of the reasons that I enjoy speaking with college and university students is that I think most of the time uh, in the busyness of our lives, we ask a lot of how and what questions, like how am I going to pay for this? What am I going to have for dinner? Those types of like practical living questions, but on the, maybe when you're younger, you have time to zoom out and ask those bigger why questions. Why am I doing this in the first place? What's the purpose of all of this? And so it's important for us to step back and think through that because as we're going to see that profoundly shapes the trajectory of our lives being able to answer that question, what is the purpose of my life? Now, there's a a famous, we can look at this from a sort of an academic and scientific perspective from the social sciences. There's a well-known author named Jonathan Haidt. He's well-known for his book, The Righteous Mind, and also The Coddling of the American Mind. He's a bit of a rock star academic in our time. Um, and leads a lot of different forums and formats. And not a believer, he would probably consider himself kind of liberal atheist Jew would be his category. And before he became super famous for these other two books, he wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis, which is about how ancient wisdom kind of speaks to the fundamental questions of life. And so he writes this whole book, The Happiness Hypothesis, in his conclusion, which is actually in the penultimate chapter, he comes down to the point where he says, look, across all human cultures, in order to live a happy and satisfying life, You need to have meaningful relationships with other people. You need to have a meaningful relationship with something bigger than yourself. And you need to have meaningful work. And I remember reading that and thinking, that's on page like 237. I just saved you that much reading. Um, (laughs) I remember thinking, huh, that sounds really familiar to me. You know where we find that? Genesis chapter 2. And so I'm not giving him credit for writing the preamble to the Bible, but what I'm saying is is that after all this time and multiple degrees and our academic knowledge, we get back to that it's not good for man to be alone; that he's made to be in relationship with something bigger than himself, and it's important for us to have meaningful, satisfying work to do. What our modern sciences can do for us is illustrate the problem well, but then it doesn't answer the question very well. And so basically where our modern science on that question has gotten us is to the beginning of the Bible, and the Bible goes on for another 1,100-plus chapters answering that on the other side of that. And so this is a problem that's not, not a religious problem, so to speak, uniquely in that way, but it's one that the Christian message has something deeply to say in response to this. This is like our question. This is our game. And it's fascinating that if you look at kind of the statistics of the world around us, we would say, well, we're trending in a guarantee it, you've heard somebody say, well, I'm uh, spiritual but not religious, right? I mean, that's kind of the trajectory of the way things are going. Um, But on university campuses, even very secular ones, where you would say, this is not um, a religious place. 88% of the students on some of these campuses would say they're on a spiritual journey of some sort. Spiritual journey, doesn't that sound all cool and Um, Oprah-esque? The idea that uh, on, the, on the surface of the lake, everything looks calm and placid, but there are these deep, uh, troubling waters of turmoil and seeking underneath of, of longing to connect with something spiritual. Now, that pops up in a lot of weird ways. Like my generation, I was just listening to something on the statistics of the numbers of people, astrology, way on the rise, my generation uh, compared to the previous generation, looking to all sorts of things that connect with something bigger than ourselves. Uh, nature is a big one, right? I go out in nature, I have a mountaintop experience, and I think there's a very good biblical reason for why we feel that way. Um, art can do that same thing, but what, we, what I find that's fascinating is people are pushing into that category of connecting with something bigger than themselves, but what we're looking for is a connection with something bigger than ourselves that doesn't demand anything from me in response, So when I go sit on the mountain and watch the sunrise, I feel like I'm small and I feel like I'm part of bigger than something, but the oak tree isn't going to tell me how to live my life, right? And so it allows me the benefit of connecting with something bigger while at the same time not imposing anything back onto my individual freedom. It's about my experience of it, not about some other type of authority from the outside telling me what to do with my life. And in an odd way, we're, we're trending back in this direction of sort of um, personal freedom, not cultural freedom or religious freedom, or, but personal freedom as the highest virtue. And one of the fascinating things is that the fastest way to get free is to deny responsibility. If you're not in charge of it, then you're free. Think about that. The fastest way to get free is to deny responsibility, your schedule is not incredibly free if you're milking 300 dairy cows, right? Because you have a responsibility. You can't just go do whatever you want to do or fill in the blank with the job that you do. There's a limitation to what you're enabled to do because you have a responsibility to do something. That might be to your family, to your church, community, whatever. But we, as we would say, responsible adults recognize that there's a responsibility that binds us to something. The flip in our moment is, is that we're now seeing that that responsibility isn't freeing to me by any stretch of imagination, but rather it's limiting me. So I say, that's not my problem. Hands off. I'm not in charge of that. I'm free. Now, here comes the tricky part of that is because when you deny responsibility, you also forfeit anything that remotely resembles meaning in your life. The meaningful things in your life come from your real responsibilities and real connections that you have to other people. So you can't deny responsibility and maintain meaning in your life at the same time. You can't totally disconnect from everything all of around you um, and still have a what we would consider meaningful life. So I had a friend who was part of a psychology program in the Air Force trying to stem suicide uh, in the armed forces. And he would go to these things, and he was a Christian. he'd be like, we're, we're at a meaning-making workshop to say you make your own meaning for your life and that group has a no different suicide rate than anybody else, and nobody can figure out why making your own meaning doesn't work as a stable way to live life. And this goes back, I mean, this isn't even religious, this is just basic moral psychology at this point of saying, we know that we're meant to be connected to something beyond ourselves in order to function well as a human. And so part of that is, is okay, what is, it, what is the thing that I am made to do? What is the purpose of, a, of the thing of which I am? And you can't really get an answer to that question until you figure out exactly what it is that you are. Identity is deeply linked to purpose. And so there are two ways you can look at this. You can say, well, I'm basically, you know, carbon, a little bit of nitrogen and some oxygen and different things, Um, that's basically who I am. And you would push back to me maybe on that and say, well, you know what, Um, that's also true about a tomato plant. And I think there's a little bit more going on there, even with the Jeep incident factored in than a tomato plant is going on, so maybe there's a little bit more to that. So there's the tomato version, or I can come into this identity thing with I'm the master of my own destiny, my fingertips are dripping with divinity, and I'm you know transcend all things, and like, that, that overshoots it a little bit in the other direction, doesn't it? And so to live as a human somewhere between the tomato and the ultimate transcendent uh, is the project for humanity of, I like to introduce myself as a carbon-based life form made in the image of God. I feel like that kind of helps me balance that out just about right in that idea of my identity being something that God has given to me. Now, the fascinating part of this is for me is that um, the way, and this is particularly true if you've grown up in the church, uh, thinking about the way that we construct that identity. um, Actually, let me steal the stool for a second. I think this is the the way that I've had this best explained to me from a a number of different thinkers, and this is sort of a consolidation of their thought, of saying something in the category of Let's imagine that the top of the stool is your identity, and, and we'll also have to use our imaginations here and say that this is a milk stool or three-legged stool, and that most of the time when people talk about their identity, they're talking about their thinking and their feeling and their doing. Think about how you introduce yourself to somebody. Um, hey, how are you feeling? Hey, what are you thinking about? What are you doing? You know, Thinking, feeling, doing, those are kind of broad concepts that, we, um, that support and, and provide the foundation for our, our identity. Now, our thinking and our feeling are largely um, private oftentimes, and so doing becomes the foundation of who we are. And that's quickly where a conversation goes when you meet somebody for the first time. What do you do? Uh, What do you study? What's your occupation? What's your job? What have you done? Where have you traveled? What are your experiences? And we make judgments about people based off of what they do. And so, like it or not, we live in a time and a place where our identities are largely based upon what it is that we do. Is that you would, there's some nods there saying, yeah, that kind of seems like people say, I'm a doctor, I'm a farmer, whatever. You know, What I do is who I am. And that is partially why you see, I think people struggle so much with retirement um, or somebody who's a great quarterback and then no longer can do that thing that I am known for doing that my identity is based off of that and then I lose the ability to do that. Um, that undermines that. And that same thing is true. If I have an identity that's based off of a feeling, and I no longer have that emotional experience. My identity collapses if I have um, an identity that is based off of something that I think, and then I have a doubt that identity collapses if I have an identity based off of something that I do, and then that is no longer possible, then my identity collapses. And it's a fairly fragile way, but it is the majority view of the way in which we think about identity in our world is that we have these things, and they undergird and uphold our identity. The Christian version of that is that the stool is upside down. That actually being made in the image of God, you're given an identity as a gift from God. Who you are is made in the image of God, and then your thinking and your feeling and your doing flow up out of that. So there are things that are byproducts and blossom and are derivatives of that. And so if my identity is in Christ, and then I have a, I'm not feeling it. Well, my identity is still in Christ, I just, I'm emotionally not at the right place. If my identity is in Christ... And you come to me and say, I think all Christian apologists are idiots. I'll say, well, that's an interesting question. We should talk about that. But it doesn't undermine the totality of who I am. And the same thing could be true for, um, yeah, what I do, what I think, what I feel, all the way across the board. And so as a Christian, you live with this um, stability of identity that is a very unique thing that sometimes I think makes it difficult for us to communicate with people who don't have this vision. Because if somebody is living under this model, and let's say they have an identity that is based off of an activity, and then that activity comes under scrutiny, they don't feel that as a threat to the activity. They feel that as undermining their identity, which is why the old phrase, hate the sin and love the sinner, doesn't necessarily work so well anymore, because what once was considered a sin is now considered an identity. So if you're critiquing the activity that that identity is based off of, it comes across as a personal threat rather than a critique of a behavior. And so as somebody who's living from this model and somebody critiques me, that is not a, that's not a threat or a blow to who I am, but somebody living with an identity based in the other model really does feel that as a, and that's not to make a statement about what you should and shouldn't do, it's just to be mindful, I think, that in certain conversations that we have about how it is that we live our lives, that there's uh, a need for a recalculation and a recalibration there of What's really going on and are we communicating effectively on that? The danger in having an identity that's at the top, that's constructed based off of our our feelings or our cultural movements, is that one of the burdens that I see that is so heavy on so many people is that in this model of having your identity on top, you bear the burden of making yourself lovable. It's up to you to be good enough to be loved. And you're the one who holds the standard and the definition of love And it's a heavy thing to live with that at the top. And that's a burden that is, uh, you've seen that probably play out in people's lives and in their relationships. Um, And so there's a a, a vulnerability there that I think as a church is helpful to just be aware of that, that there's a fragility there to identity that's so deeply linked to activity that we need to communicate that um, very clearly and carefully and compassionately. Now, That idea of our identity being a gift to us from God about being made in His image is really a gift of responsibility. And if you look, kind of, uh, my biblical summary of what does it mean to be made in the image of God, there's a real sense in which that image is not structural in the sense that, you know, God has two ears and blue eyes or what, I mean, whatever. Um, But it's that we were made to reflect who He is on the earth. When I go to, like, uh, an art gallery or something and there's a, a painting or something that really captures me, I don't take my phone out and take a picture of the painting. I always go over to the little marker and take a picture of the name of the artist. I want to look at it like who was the person behind this thing? What what was their life like that they were able to express themselves in this way? And so there's a sense in which the image that's stamped on the artwork draws me in to know more about who the artist really was. And I think in that same way you have a God who creates a beautiful world, declares it to be good, sets it up, and then stamps his image on it in such a way that there's a a way in which, isn't it fascinating that Jesus does his miraculous signs and the people praise the God of Israel? Like there's that double-step transfer of Jesus does the awesome thing and God gets the credit for it. That's the fullness of the image right there of of God saying, this is a reminder that humans function in a unique way that they reflect um, and can translate and transmit the goodness of who I am. So there's a reflecting element to that. There's a representative element to that, that God has real things for you to do, that he didn't just put you here uh, experimentally to see how it would all play out, but he had a plan and a purpose, um, not just like overall, generally speaking, but daily has things for us to do that really make a difference in the outcome of the way that the world works, that God <laughs> foreknows and can work with, and how he does that is mysterious and glorious, but is great and it's true, and that that is a real responsibility. It's fascinating there when Jesus is talking in John chapter 8 to some of the Jewish leaders, and he talks about them being uh, in bondage, and they say, well, we've never been slaves of anybody. And you're like, did they just forget the entire Old Testament? Um, (laughs) What do you mean you've never been slaves of anybody? That's like your story. Um, But setting that aside, um, Jesus says, interesting, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And here we get back to the kind of that cultural desire for personal freedom and Jesus saying that there's a truth that transcends us, that abiding by that sets us free, that there are constructs and constraints to what it is that we are, that living within those boundaries makes us free. I think it was Martin Luther who said, a fish is free in water. Uh, You know, there's a a certain freedom that a fish has as long as it's acting like a fish. A fish is not free in a tree. Um, it's outside of the bounds of what it was created for. And there are many examples of like that, of looking at the fullness of what the thing was created for and then the pleasure and the freedom that it has when it's working within the boundaries that it's been designed for. Now, as soon as I say boundaries someplace, people <laughs> fire off the legalism cannons and throw flags on the plane, all that kind of thing. Um, and it's interesting, you know, where I live, there are lots of people have sheep, and you're driving down the road and you see a fence, and I never look at the fence and be like, wow, that farmer really hates his sheep. He put a fence around them. Can you believe the oppression uh, and how much he must, the maniacal farmer who hates his sheep, that he would put a fence around them? Um, You're looking at the boundary, not thinking about that is keeping them out of the road, away from a lot of predators, and in the place where their food is. The boundary is a blessing. And that's been more of the Christian perspective on this, of King David in Psalm 116, when he writes, surely the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, like, you think you're the king of the whole country. That's a pretty good boundary line. But he says, I have a God who gives me counsel. He wasn't talking about a property boundary. He was saying that God has outlined for him the ways in which he should live his life. And David well knew what happened when you crossed those boundaries. And so the boundaries are part of the way in which God creates a world that gives us a lot of freedom because it's there for our protection, not for our manipulation. I often think of the idea of... um, it's kind of neat to me that a, that a horse, when it's running, is breathing more efficiently than when it's walking. Uh, as its front legs come forward, it's expanding its lungs, and then as the legs come back, it's collapsing the lungs, and so it's actually breathing more efficiently. It was made to run. That's what a horse does, I'm not, and that does not mean that it's easy, but it means that it was made to do that, and there's an efficiency when we're functioning within the purpose for which we are created. Now, those types of things can easily get confused in this world. I remember my dad often talked about, as a kid, having some ducks who were terrible mothers, Um, and so they would take the eggs from the duck and stick them under the chicken, and chickens can hatch little ducklings lickety-split. It's an easy thing for a chicken to do. Um, And the hen hatches the ducklings, and then everybody's happy. And then one day, the hen walks past the pond with her little row of ducklings, and the little ducklings look at their webbed feet, and they look at the water, and they say... And I'll jump in the pond and the hen has a coronary on the bank because she knows whatever hatches under her is not supposed to willfully jump into the pond. And so she's freaking out there. And they are delighted because here are little creatures that have been running around on the wood chips in the barn with webbed feet thinking this is awkward. That hadn't stepped into the fullness of what it is that they were created for. I often wonder if there aren't some similarities there in our human life of being ducks born under a chicken. Uh, because of sin and brokenness in the world, a confused identity that doesn't feel quite right to us. We don't quite feel like we fit into this world by the metrics and the standards that the world has to offer us. And Jesus comes along and talks about offering us water. And we're like, oh, the little webbed feet. This makes sense. This is life. This is what I was made for. And so I think really what Jesus is doing is inviting us into a way of life. Are there boundaries to it? Absolutely. Is there a real responsibility to it? Absolutely. Is there a real freedom to it? Absolutely. But there's also a real pleasure that comes from doing that. Again, that's not to say that life is easy or that discipleship is easy, but when you're functioning in the way that God designed you, there's a real pleasure of participation in what it is that God has for you to do. And so that's why I am so captivated by Christians who are able to go through seemingly horrendous things and maintain that idea, the joy of the Lord is my strength. How are they so happy and are so content in the midst of this? How can Paul write that about that idea of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? as a statement about being content both in times of great difficulty, but even maybe more miraculously in times of great pleasure and blessing. He knows how to be content, and the problem of pain and the problem of pleasure are both things that often bring a lot of discontentment in life. And so when you look at the Christian lives who really have um, lived this well, those are some, for me, some of the most powerful proclamations of the truth of the gospel, of looking at what it is that God really can do in the life of somebody. There's a, a sense, I guess, in which I would sort of answer the question of what is the purpose of our lives, and I would say that it's to experience and participate in the goodness that God creates to experience and participate in the goodness that God creates. There's an experiential component of that. You were made to be in relationship with a transcendent, all-powerful, all-knowing, loving God. That's what you were created for. You are meant to experience that as a human being. You are calibrated just as I have a hand that I can reach out and shake your hand. You are a spiritual creature that has the capacity to have a direct contact with the living God. That's the duck egg you were designed for an experiential knowledge of a holy God. That's planning. That's the experience part. But then as a byproduct of that, it's not that you just sit there and all totally all the time of the glory and the goodness of God's love for you, but then there's the participatory part of that too, where he says, I have real things I would like you to do today. To balance out how it is that God's sovereignty and his goodness and his bigness and his planning and his thinking work with including me into it, um, is a complex idea. The uh, there's a, an analogy that I, I use often, just because I think it, it works best for what I'm trying to put this together here at the end as I bring this to a close. Of the idea that, um, well, this is the clearest example that's happened in my life. You'll probably be able to think of versions of this too. But when we lived in, uh, my wife and I lived in Massachusetts, our daughter was two at the time, and we had this big recycling barrel in our kitchen in our apartment. And uh, on Friday afternoons, I would get back from work or class and my daughter and I would take the recycling down the street to the dumpster. And it always took forever because she wanted to go with me. She was two years old. We had to stop and name the squirrels. The shoes fell off. You know the thing of trying to do anything with a two year old, right? Um, And then we would get down to the dumpster and of course she couldn't carry anything. So she would carry one milk jug. I would carry the barrel. We would get to the dumpster. She couldn't reach the dumpster. So I would dump my barrel and then I would pick her up. She would throw her milk jug in. And then I would put her in the barrel and carry her in the barrel back to the apartment And she laughed the whole way, and this is just the thing that we did um, together. Now, why did I take my daughter along with me on that journey? I could have done that by myself way faster. I had it covered. I could have done it. Why did I take her along with me? Well, because I love my daughter, I wanted to spend time with her, and I wanted to show her important things about the way that I think about the world. And so it's something we did together. Well, after this had become our pattern and our routine, at one point we were getting ready to leave for a trip or something, we were in a hurry, I ran home, grabbed the recycling down the street, came back, and my daughter was in a puddle of tears in our kitchen floor, so deeply offended. She could not believe that I took the recycling out without her. And you're like, what is wrong with this kid? That's good mental manipulation. She's crying about not taking out the trash. Um, (laughs) that's, That's not what was going on there. What was going on there is she felt like she was a real part of her father's business. And that's something that she delighted in doing because that was a thing that we did together, and she liked having her little part of being about the bigger plan in the picture that I had. If you construct a religion that says, you must do this, this, and this once a week, that will quickly become oppressive and overbearing. If you clearly understand what it is that Jesus is inviting you into, it's into the pleasure of participating in your father's business. Why does God use you to do anything? He could do it way better and way faster without me. I can guarantee you that and without the rest of you. So why does he let you be part of his plan? And I would say it's because your heavenly father loves you. He wants to spend time with you. And he wants you to have a vision for the way that he sees the world. I like how Steve Garber described discipleship as Jesus saying, come look over my shoulder and through my heart. See what I'm looking at and the way in which I'm engaging with the world. And that will be good for you. And so the invitation to become a Christian, to line up and to follow Jesus when he says, follow me, is an invitation to that that form of participation where the thing that we're doing really does matter, but it's because we're part of our father's business and we're fulfilling and completing the thing that he had for us to do. And so here I stand in life with my milk jug, as it were, my little tiny part of the trash can. God's carrying the barrel, but he allows me to have a part of that. And so I think oftentimes uh, we think about, you know, what's going to be in my obituary as the thing that I did. Did such and such for 40 years. That's great. I, I'm, a, I'm a big picture planner. I like to think three years down the road if we got this figured out and these people moved here and mobilized this, we could fund this and start a thing here and that would support this thing. And, you know, I'm like way out there and my wife says, hey, what do you think we should have for lunch? And <laughs> I say, you know what, that's a far more practical question. And for me, it's a spiritual discipline on this, on this topic of purpose in life, not to just punt it into the, the meta-level sphere and think about purpose of life, but to think each day, Lord, what do you have for me to do today? What do you want me to see? What do you want me to hear? What gifts and abilities have you given me that I can use to serve other people? Who can I speak a word of encouragement to? Who do I need to hear from <laughs> that can correct and teach me? What do you have for me to do today? And I found that to be a satisfying way to live when I'm looking for the doors that the Lord has opened and stepping through those rather than trying to force them open on my own. And so I'm being invited into a thing that God is already doing, and he's allowing me the pleasure of participating in the world as he created it. He's in charge of it, and he lets me tag along, losing a shoe frequently, dropping my milk jug, chasing squirrels, and all the other ways that I get distracted in my little two-year-old Christian mind But he loves me and wants to spend time with me, and I know that if that's true for me, then that also is true for you. Solomon went through it all, right? Wrote Ecclesiastes, I tried this, I tried this, I tried this, I tried this. Uh, He didn't need Jonathan Haidt to tell him what leads to a satisfying life. And he comes down to the end of it all, and he says what? What's the conclusion of all things that to fear God and keep his commands for this is the whole of mankind? and it's a simple thing, that we thrive and function best with the boundaries that God has given us, not because God hates us and wants to pigeonhole us into things, but he knows uh, the creator of the device puts a warranty on it, not because they want to annoy you, but they know that using it for the wrong reason is going to destroy it. And so we have a God who loves us enough to express and uh, reveal enough about how it is that we should behave through his scripture, through the teaching of the wise Christians around us, to give us an insight and an image into the boundaries that are in place for humanity, not ones that are based off of our feelings or what we want, thank goodness, but the ones that he gives us. And I think the, there's a two-step trajectory that comes out of that then is that oftentimes I think it's right. David got it right. Surely the boundary lines, it's, it's, a, it's a statement of gratitude. Thank you, God, for not allowing me to destroy myself. I think a large part of my kind of salvation experience was recognizing that the trajectory of me making my decisions ended up in not a good spot. Thank you, God, for giving me guidance in a way in which to live my life. And then the response, out of gratitude always flows joy. Gratitude is the prerequisite for joy. This exuberant uh, response of recognizing the goodness of who God is. And so I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel, a pie in the sky, it's all going to be you know Cotton candy and unicorns from here on out, but what i 'm saying is is that that idea that there 's a uh, a, subs, subs, um, a deep, sustaining joy that permeates the depth of the life of the Christian experience. almost I think of it like a like a chord progression in a song there 's that slow, steady beat, and then there are jazz riffs that go off of it, and people drop notes, and there 's everything else that happens all around it, but there 's that slow, steady, solid core of the song of our life that God holds together in a way that allows us to sing it as well with my soul, even in the chaos of life. And so that is something that God offers to us, um, and it really does lead to a fun way of living life, even in the midst of the reality of the world that we live in, to be able to get up and watch the sunrise and live in a way where you have a grin in your soul and a skip in your step, not because um, everything is perfect, but because you know about the goodness of the God who's in charge of it all, and you are responding to the invitation that he has for you, on that day to be a part of your father's business. And so the purpose of your life is to experience and to participate in the goodness that God creates and to live a life of gratitude and out of that comes a deep life of steady joy. Amen. So what we're going to do now is I think Eric's going to grab a microphone and if you want to just pop your hand up and ask a question um, we'll start with questions of clarification on things that I said and I'm guessing that it'll probably... uh, derail at some point for that, but that's okay, and uh, maybe if you'll give us your name first, that would be helpful too, and um, I'll do the best that I can to answer, and then those that I can't will write down and get somebody who knows what's going on to uh, preach a sermon on it or something some other time, so.
0: Yeah, you didn't even get the cowboy question right, so I'm not
1: really sure what else. And the helpful thing here is if you could um, do this strategically, so like somebody over here ask a question, and then somebody in the far back corner ask a question, just so he really has to run with the microphone. I think that's the, <laughs> the proper way to do that. Great. Yes, he is. So somebody over here, get ready. I'm,
0: I'm going to get over here, and he's actually not going to have a question. He's just going <laughs> to come over here.
1: I'm Eli. You talked about the American way of farming, where you have a fence Mm -hmm. and keep the animals in. I've heard tell about the Australian way, where you dig a well, and the animals come back because they like, well, they need, they Uh like, they want water. Mm -hmm. And that was what they were used as a metaphor for following Christ, Yes. So I'd like you to comment, perhaps, on that Australian way of freedom yes. versus the American being I'm fenced so, in. I'm so glad you asked that. Thank you. So just and there was a song about don't fence me in. Remember that. <laughs> yeah. There's a, so, so just to fulfill the, the illustration there, um, and actually I've heard this uh, specifically used in a lot of books about kind of a, a renewed Christian sexual ethic of saying you don't need the fence and you don't need the boundaries. What you need is a really beautiful source of water. And if you have a good well in the middle, then everything flocks to that and stays within kind of the the sphere of nourishment that that rich and nutritious well provides. And so the fences are unnecessary because there's a, a source of sustenance and it actually sounds really good. Instead of having boundaries, what you're doing is you're having something that's so beautiful in the middle of it that everybody is drawn to that and therefore you can kind of do whatever you want. You don't need the boundaries. That's the analogy. And I've heard that over and over again. You know what's fascinating about that model? Is that that only works when you've killed all the predators. That model of sheep farming only works when you've shot everything else that's uh, harmful to a sheep. And so that's a fascinating way, and that's, I think, where the analogy falls short, is to say that, um, I mean, I I like the idea. There's, There's a good concept to it, but it's been used to justify the destruction of boundaries. If only we could focus on what Jesus meant by love then we have this pure rich well that's deep enough that all sexual ethics are unnecessary because we're focusing on Jesus. Um, that only works if there isn't actual opposition from the outside in. And so, yeah, that does work in England and other places where they shot all the wolves and bears a long time ago, but it doesn't work so well um, in the reality of the world that I see um, that there are, uh, there are real damaging things. And, and, and not to put this in all in the sexual ethics category, but um, I think there's um, room to be cautious about that as the as this uh, kind of the one-and-done farming solution analogy of what Christ's love can do for us um, because that, that does undermine the idea that there actually is real opposition and there are things that are bad for us. So I don't know if that's um, something we can talk about later, but uh, I think that's one of the, the uh, shortcomings that I see of using that analogy of saying we can cast off all boundaries as long as we have... A good enough core. So I like the idea of having something nourishing and life-giving at the middle of it, but I also want to live within the reality of recognizing that God does um, lay things down for us to do. Um, actually, if you go through, well, and we'll talk about ethics tomorrow night um, as the as the topic there. But um, yeah, thanks for asking that question. I think it's a it's certainly an analogy that I see a lot, usually more so to justify the lack of need for any boundaries or ethics rather than to talk about the beauty of the thing in the center. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. I appreciated your metaphor about uh, taking the recycling down with your daughter. Mm. I thought that was really neat. And uh, I was thinking to myself, the inverse of that could also be true. Okay. If uh, so, I'm the two-year-old Christian, and God's carrying the the you know large barrel full of milk mm-hmm. jugs, and I want more than one milk jug, or perhaps I want the whole barrel. What happens if we do that? Yeah. So I think that's just a simple recognizing the, the limitations that we have, um, and if you're if you're a, a high-performing, achieving type person, that is a threshold that's hard to figure out on our own sometimes. I think, um, and one of the one of the challenging things, this is just me confessing, and so I'll just smear the guilt around if it works, um, is that for me to understand that to be a disciple of Jesus means leaving some good things left undone, because A, I can't do all good things, and B, I'm not in charge of doing all good things, and Jesus left a lot of places, and that the work wasn't done, i got to go preach the gospel in this place, and so that's where, for me, the Uh, discernment that comes, A, from God, but B, also from Christian community, of having some accountability around us that can help us see. um, I like that Galatians introduction passage there where it talks about everyone being able to carry their own burden, and then it says carry one another's burdens. Um, The community discernment there that is needed for me to be able to separate out what is the thing that I am big enough to carry, and what is the thing that I need the community to help me carry. um, There's a blessing then in which God withholds from us. Um, I often... Uh, jokingly say, you know, if I give an animal cracker to one of my kids, I don't know if you think about this, I don't know how you're, maybe your kids are just perfect in this nursery, but if I give an animal cracker to a little kid in the nursery at our church, they come up there like this, and I put an animal cracker in their hand, do they put that animal cracker in their mouth? No. They put the animal cracker in this hand and then hold this hand out again, right? And then I put an animal cracker in that hand, and then they put it in this hand and hold out this hand, I say, whoa, hold on there, little buddy. How about you deal with what I've already given you, and then we'll move on to the next thing. And so I think sometimes there's a bit of a mercy in God of not giving us that next thing. Um, I'm always struck by that, that picture when, when in, the, in the trial scene and Jesus turns and looks at Peter and he weeps. What does Jesus say? Nothing. He's already said it. Peter knows. And then that him, what more can he say than to you who he has said? All right, he's already told you enough. Like, How about you eat the animal cracker I have given you, and then we'll talk about the next one. And so I think there's a a sense in which in discerning that for me, it's come down to when I don't know what to do next, that's a time for me to really reevaluate and make sure that I'm doing an excellent job at what I do know I'm supposed to be doing. And then in that process, God grows and equips me to take on the next thing. So I think that's absolutely right that there's a a blessing when God doesn't give us more than we can handle. Um, On the other hand, I do that to my kids all the time. They way overestimate how far they can jump across streams how big of a piece of firewood they can carry. So I hand a 20-pound piece of firewood to a three-year-old all the time just to remind him of, yeah, how'd that go for you? All right, let's go. You know, um, <laughs> so there's a little learning experiment there. It's not child abuse, it's education. Um, the, the, so there's, there's a sense there, too, of which I think God does let us. Uh, there's, God has those Burger King moments of have it your way um, and, and see how that works out for you and then <laughs> saves us out of that. So, yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, I I think uh, a lot of people, uh, my name's Brian, a lot of people come from um, criticism of the church because of its boundaries, or Mm
0: -hmm. uh, come from traditions where there were a lot of rules. How do we help people transition to be able to engage
1: with the church again when they've come from, you know, like damaged goods, you know, they've Mm -hmm. been tainted by their experience? How, How do we... How do yeah. help them do that. That's such a great question, and I think it's a it's a difficult one um, yeah and <laughs> and the real faces of real people are flooding to my mind here of um, yeah people say oh you know so and so is kind of skeptical about the church, and I'm thinking, man, if you knew their story, if like, they like say in West Virginia, a cat doesn't jump on a hot stove twice, um, you know. When you get burned, um, there's a real hesitancy to go back toward anything that looks like that. So I think there's a a sense in which um, our own faithful presence um, is is a big part of allowing people to come back into the church. Um, There are people that have been burned. I was joking with Eric. because like, if you look statistically out of 12 disciples, it looks like uh, on average there about 8.3 of Jesus' disciples uh, conspired to kill him. Uh, That's a pretty high percentage (laughs) of the disciples that are out to get him. Um, So there's, there's the reality of recognizing the brokenness that's there, but as far as the, the boundaries go and the rules, um, there's, there's a, a sense in which I think we have to, to teach to a higher level of, I can tell my kids do this in an authoritarian way, or I can explain, this is the broader purpose of what's going on here, and in order to do that, as a family, this is what we need to do. So the same action happens, the same boundary is in place, but there's a fuller description of um, what needs to happen that allows them to see the bigger picture of that. And so I think that's the the beauty, and I don't know all the ways in which the different churches around here act, but most of the time in which people have really been hurt by that is when there's an authority structure that just says, this is how you do it, and there's not an explanation for it. Um, I think for me, as I think about my childhood and my spiritual formation, a ton of that happened through stories of people saying somebody did this, and this is what happened. And your great-grandpa, this happened, and this is how they responded, and this happened. And so you're using the congregation to see the causes and effect of, you know, um, we once once took all the fences down around the sheep, um, and this is what happened. Uh, And so for me, um, something that I would like to be better at and try to do is to not just say this is this, but this is why this is um, in a gentle way and at the same time give a lot of um, experience of my own, uh, wrestling with those ideas i i think sometimes people are a little more um yeah i was thinking of somebody i know who very involved in their church and then stuff went super sideways like pastor ran off of the piano player kind of goofiness and they're like we're done with this and that guy's raised horses all of his life um and the conversation i would want to have is have you ever been kicked by a horse and he's gonna say yeah have you ever known a crazy horse yeah why do you still keep horses well, because those aren't representative of the whole thing. So I think there's a, a sense in which we have to, to be honest about uh, any organization that's full of humans uh, is going to have problems. And please, I'm sure your pastoral staff would here would say, don't put your eternal hope in your pastoral staff here either, um, that our confidence goes beyond that. So we look to the person of Jesus. We don't evaluate um, a system of thinking or philosophy based off of the travesties committed in its name. We look to the life of the founder. And Jesus was very compassionate about that. Oftentimes, um, we think of, it's, it's actually interesting to look at the model of Jesus on this. Jesus speaks, Jesus never actually really teaches on grace. Kind of odd, isn't it? Um, but we, I mean, he was gracious, and he talks about the gracious master in the, in the uh, parable with the vineyard. But Jesus lays down, like, if you look at Matthew, there are 42 imperatives of Jesus, like, do this. But why does Jesus not come across as legalistic? I think the reason is is that when you look, when I look at history uh, in this category of truth, uh, I have a real heart for the skeptic because most truth claims are made with an agenda. Like if you, an advertisement is a truth claim, right? It's, it's saying if you buy this product, this thing is going to happen. And so our default position is to reject truth claims or you would just buy everything on Amazon, right? Um, it's, you have to be able to say no to that. And it's almost like if there is a thing that is spoken that is true, there's a catch or there's a scheme or there's a manipulation there. You don't think the lady in that shampoo commercial really thinks that that's the best product. You just know that she wants you to think that, so you buy the thing and she makes money. Like, that's the thing, right? And so when I look across history, I see Jesus show up, and somehow Jesus is able to speak about truth in a way that it makes it seem like he's speaking about truth for the benefit of the person hearing, not for his own. And any time that you have an authority structure that somehow is using, is weaponizing that privilege, um, then, that, then that's the opposite of what it is that Jesus is doing. So I feel like I'm not giving an answer to this at all, other than saying that I, I acknowledge that as a problem. But somewhere in the life and the teaching of Jesus is somebody who could come across, who had the ability to articulate rules and boundaries in a way that were life-giving. People didn't feel condemned by them and really offered them an opportunity to step into something that was, was freeing and, and holding them up. And so I, I wish I had the silver bullet on that one. But um, I think there's a gentleness. I, I, um, I go way out of my way never to publicly condemn the church. But I think also in private conversations, you can uh, be very realistic of listening to people and say, hey, tell me your story. And you can lament with them when things are broken. Um, and you can say, you know what? Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Uh, so there's the, the sense in which Jesus has that same... A critical view sometimes of the things that are done in his name so we have to um, acknowledge that and uh, embrace that on the other hand we don't leave it there as the ultimate model um, moving forward so yeah that's a, a a pastoral challenge i think that all of us who have non-christian friends or formerly christian friends probably will have those conversations um in the upcoming years and so i'm in, i'm inspired by jesus who's who is able to do that um and so i hope
0: he enables you to do that that well
1: also i've got one
0: yeah in continuing with the sort of the thinking about the idea of the well versus the boundary and mm-hmm. thinking about identity in christ it seems easier for us to form our identity in christ based on the boundaries than it is based on the well why mm-hmm. why do you think that is, or would you agree with that and and why do you think that that yeah. is so you know we, we, we define ourselves are we in Christ we, I mean Paul uses that phrase over and over again mm-hmm. in his letters but it seems like it, the in Christ part's easier for us to think about in terms of boundary than it is and think
1: in yeah terms of well Wow great question so there's um, an interesting thing there so if we use that look at Paul's language of in Christ as analogous to kind of the boundary so I am in Christ that's a within type uh, language there um, there's that but I don't have I can't I can't pull the exact statistic of, of the frequency of usage there, but Christ, Paul talks about being in Christ, but he also talks a lot about Christ in me. That I may be found in him, and also talking about Christ in me. And that's, that's the both language there of, and what you're saying, I think, is that that, that intimacy of Christ in us, the well aspect of that analogy, um, is a harder one because uh, I like uh, my grandfather kind of puts it this way when he, sa- he says that um, I in him is my salvation, he in me is his lordship, that I may be found in him. So being found in him, I in him is my salvation, he in me is his lordship, he's in, he's in charge. And so even in that, that intimacy of Christ being within us, that's that's not a, that's not a symbolic thing, that's not mer- metaphorical, that's a real ontological reality. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, that's, that's not duck eggs under chickens, that's a real spiritual thing that that God forms in us, Um, and so I think that um, me in Christ is an easier thing to fake than Christ in me, because we can set up a way, well, I come to church every Sunday, and I do this once a week, and it's almost pharisaical of setting up the boundary of, and as long as I'm in a, you know, approximation of the field, it doesn't, I don't even have to be drinking from the well, as long as I'm inside the fence, I'm good to go, but the fullness of what it is that Christ calls us to and that degree of union with Christ and discipleship is a much deeper and difficult thing, um, I think, in the long run. So, so maybe that, that gets to that a little bit of, of looking at the fullness of what that language means, of us being in him and then him being in us as Jesus promised. Um, the reality then of, of being indwelled by the Holy Spirit and that freshness and that sweetness, that fountain of life, overflowing language comes from the indwelling language of the New Testament, not me being in proximity um, to the Christian institutions and structures around me. So I think there's a, uh, a hunger that I have for more of that to be real for me, um, and I'm sure that's the case for many of you as well. Here in the front, and then over there. We're on a red shirt theme. Thank you. In
2: regards to what you were talking about, um, in regards to legalism mm-hmm. legalism, yeah. How, as a person like you, presenting what you present in numerous ways,
1: yeah.
2: How are you able to get across that the message that um, when Christ said, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do," mm-hmm. how do you? I mean, I understand as a Christian we have certain values we need to grasp onto, yeah. But we also know that as sinners, we're not going to get it right all the time,
1: yeah. <laughs> So,
2: I mean, yeah,
1: <laughs> that, that's a Yeah, let me, I'll, I'll answer that and then you kind of nod along if I'm getting it correctly there. I think, one, some, and this pertains to Brian's question also, is that um, legalism, somebody once said, and I'm, I'm still chewing on this, that legalism is a, fundal, uh, is a fundamental misunderstanding of how grace works. So you're thinking that something about the actions that I do make me savable in a sense. And like you're saying, as sinners, pff, good luck with that, right? Um, so there's that element of it. On the other hand, I've seen a lot of people who are just straight up obedient be accused of being legalistic. And they're just following Christ. It's not legalism. It's, it's, a, it's a willful uh, obedience. Um, submission, when it's demanded, is oppressive. When it's given, it's a beautiful thing. And so obedience that's given to God in that way. Um, there are people who um, seek righteousness and walk in that way. So, there's, there's that part of it that, that legalism is a misunderstanding of the grace of God and how that works, and that pertains to us as sinful people. Um, and so, that's, that's, I think, an important distinction to make between legalism and obedience there, is that out of the joy of understanding what it is that God has done for me, then if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's first you're understanding the love of God, and the obedience flows from that, not I'm working my way into that. So, there's that element of it. I think, then, too, and some of this is theological is that it's fascinating to me that when Paul writes, uh, let's pick a letter like to um, the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, he talks about some pretty goofy stuff that's going on in the church in Corinth. Um, You might have weird stuff going on in your church, but if you've ever read 1 Corinthians 5 recently, they had some weird stuff going on in their church too. Um, And what's fascinating to me about that is, is he doesn't address the letter to sinners. He addresses the letter to saints, And so Paul always refers to the people of God as, the, as saints, literally the holy ones, the holy people of God who are messed up in this way. And so I've wondered about the intentionality of the use of that language. When I was in uh, college, I ran cross country. I was a runner. That means I ran like 70, 85, 75, 80 miles a week. I was a runner. That's what I did. I ran. Now I run, eh, you know, sometimes. Um, <laughs> runner is not my primary identity. Right, And so at that point, I would say, I'm a runner. What I do is I run. Now, I, whatever, I, I'm carbon-based life form made in the image of God who sometimes runs. Um, but my primary identity is not runner. And I think there is a transformation there that happens in the Christian life where we, we go from sinner as a categorical identity of the thing that we consistently and persistently do to saying, now I am a child of God who sometimes sins. Is a different, you see, there's a, there's a, a nuanced difference there. It's not a declaration of, of perfection, but it's a, a declaration of a destination that I'm choosing to grow in. And so my fundamental identity is not sinner, I do sin. My fundamental identity is in Christ, and I'm saved by him, and that's the trajectory. That's the Romans 8 passage, right? That what God has um, uh, ordained and predestined for us is to be conformed to the image of his son. That's, the, that's the, the direction of my identity that I want to grow in in that way. But I do sometimes sin. And so I think there's some, um, just on that practical level of saying, is there sin in the world? Yes. Is there brokenness? Absolutely. Is, that's the reason we have confession and communion and love feast. Um, and actually, I think Danita prayed in both services today a, a prayer of forgiveness for our sins and our shortcomings. And I think that's a real part of what it means to be a child of God. And so on one hand, I think we can have an identity that is a statement of a trajectory of the destination which we're growing. Um, my grandpa likes to use the analogy of a little tree growing in the forest. Um, which way does it grow? It grows towards the sun. Is it ever gonna get there? No, but growing toward the sun is what makes it grow straight and strong and true and valuable and productive. It's never getting there, but it's a trajectory that we're growing on. Um, and so I think that's the, there's a balance of discipleship in that where we see our trajectory as we're growing into the image of the sun, I'm not saying we're going to be perfect, but that is the fundamental orientation of our heart. That's the trajectory that we're on. And then out of the joy of acknowledging what it is that God has done for us, then I am willing to obey him even when it seems like a weird task because I know that he is good, not because I'm trying to earn my salvation. Um, And when God has a hold of somebody who is willing to be obedient, and that, you know, Philip, hey, go chase that chariot down the road. You know, God, it's very unsettling to read the Bible and look at what God has asked people to do. Is it not? (laughs) Just a little bit to say, Um, but God uses people in powerful ways when they are willing to be obedient to him because they love him and they trust him to be a good God who's commanding good things. And so there are those times in our lives when my uh, experience does not match what it is that I think God is asking of me, but knowing the size of my experience to what God knows, I'm going to say, I'm going to be obedient to the thing you're asking me to do, even though this doesn't make sense. And, um, that's a that's a bet always worth taking. Oh yeah.
0: Over there. Let's do Zach, and then maybe one more. So you mentioned
2: earlier about the whole loving the sinner, hating the sin, mm-hmm. kind of breaking down. Yeah. So how do we engage a world that, oftentimes, when the gospel is out there, it's we live in a culture that a lot of what the church, what we look at sin is wrapped up in identity. Yeah. So how do, what are some, I know <laughs> that's, I know that's a really big question, yeah, what's the solution? what are, what are some yeah. principles for engaging a world where the, there's a huge cultural pushback? Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's, whether we're doing something in the wrong or just putting yeah. the gospel out there when there's so much of sin caught up in identity.
1: Yeah. Wow. Great question. Thank you. Um, any of you ever read Calvin and Hobbes comics? You know, yeah, right, we have some believers back there. I like the one where Calvin's dad is pulling into the driveway, and there's a whole row of snowmen, and they're all holding signs that say, hate the sin, love the sinner. And his dad's like, oh, you know, what do he do? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Calvin is, is, is proclaiming that message. Um, I think the, here's how I've tried to do it. Um, and, and my simple answer is, is teasing a bit, um, or taunting a bit. And I think Jesus does this too, where often we, we end up with this idea of here's culture and here's Christian engagement, and it's a headbutting contest to see who's going to come out on top. And so often what I see Jesus doing in his interactions is he, he doesn't start off by saying, well, that's wrong. He tempts them to think, well, what if your vision's too low? And so he, he tells a story that calls to a higher level of, and he just throws that out there of like, well, what if? And so what I often do in a lot of those more contentious ones is that I try to cast a vision that's higher than saying, oh, yeah, I see how you're, but I've, I've never really thought about that. I've, it seems like that this is a bigger possibility and there's more to it. And so in some ways, that is a bit of a call back to the, to the well um, analogy of, of um, here's reality. And Jesus kind of peels the face off of the clock and says, here's what the gears behind it look like. So he, uh, you look at his interaction, like the woman at the well and different things where he doesn't necessarily address the frustration and the brokenness that she's in, but, but points to something bigger than that that kind of dwarfs that in a way that um, unsettles that cultural presupposition. Well, you're just a bigot because you disagree with me kind of thing. And so that's, that's a very short answer to that. But the challenge is, is to cast that vision of um, I'm not going to disagree with you by locking horns, but I'm going to say there's something better here that I'm offering you to come into. The, the challenge is, and I think this is where um, a lot of apologetics goes wrong and a lot of... Um, yeah, it's, it's unhealthy spiritual engagement if you, if, if you destroy somebody else's worldview or house without building a better one for them. And it's not actually that great even if you just do that and make them move into it. But if you can cre- create something better for them and invite them into that, that's the kind way for progress to happen there. And so that, um, the goal of a conversation like that is not to win. It's for them to come into a relationship with the fullness of what it is that God has for them to be, and so we try to talk in that language of the of the embracing the fullness, and that, that takes a long time. Like we can say, well, you know, identity on the bottom—that's given. Hey, every Christian wrestles with that, okay? On some category, or that's a that's a continuous lifelong reformatting. That's part of our our maybe your morning solitude of of reformatting the priorities of your life of saying this is who I am, and so we can identify with that wrestle that there are proclivities and longings in your own heart that are counter to what God has for you to, for your full identity. So I think, um, depending on what the circumstance is, is that the church has to be very careful about protesting things that it's not providing a better alternative to. Um, and so we, you either build a better house and invite them into that, or you be quiet um, because it's not going to get anywhere otherwise. And so that would be, um, yeah, there's a lot more to that, but that would be, the, I think, the overall posture. That's, that's helpful. All the way to the back. One more, and yeah. then, and then um, we're going to close with a song
0: after that. So, go down here, Christy. So, I really love the identity, the stool aspect. Mm-hmm. So, whether they're uh, not a Christian or they are a Christian, if their stool is the wrong direction, what is the best way to help flip it?
1: <laughs> yeah, how to flip a stool. Never been asked that in Q&A before. Congratulations. No, that is that is the, um, it's interesting to me that the, Paul often talks about conversion as a change of focus. Therefore, set your mind on things above. That, that is, that is the gospel message, actually, of, hey, you're trying to do that out there on your own kind of thing. And really, this is the gift that is offered to you of, of a stability relationally with something bigger than yourself, of meaningful life for you to do. And so as we get into the... Uh, the, the trajectory of where we're going here on the idea of Christianity Matters for Salvation, that is the offer that's really there. It's a fundamental shift in our identity, um, and it's wild to listen to people who have just prayed to receive Christ often don't have the, the categorical language for what to do, and, it, and, and so often there are tears there. Like, there's a real structural shift that's happening in somebody's life as, as the weight of holding themselves crumbles and they experience God... Um, in that way. And then uh, I remember my, uh, somebody who my younger brother was working with in college who became a Christian who had a, a very set pattern of behavior on Friday nights, let's put it that way, um, and who, who became a Christian and the next Saturday came back to that group of guys and he's like, guys, something is totally wrong with me. Can you help me? He's, he's like, not only did I not do what I usually do on Friday, I didn't even really feel like doing it. What happened there? And they're like, well, you know, let me explain that to you. Um, and so you can't, you can't start there. But that that we're we're not. It's not a hypothetical change. We're talking about God really changing people's lives. That is that is the gospel that God changes lives. And when we're in correct relationship with Him, that that restructures and touches everything, our sexual ethics, our finances, the way we treat our neighbor. I mean, everything is is attached and connected in a in a fullness. And that's the beauty of what it is that Christ offers us. Um, is that, I mean, so think about the language, and maybe the, maybe the phrase born again has been become a bit of a cliche, but that actually is the best analogy of what is happening. When Jesus uses that language of being born again, that's a new identity. That's a real invitation. A real thing really happens. God really does make new people. He makes beautiful things out of the brokenness that we create. That is... That is the heart of the gospel message. And so I think part of what we do with that is, is we use that into a, a trajectory of saying um, it doesn't have to be this way. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow night, that we live in a world that says it is what it is. But as a Christian, we see what it is, but know what it could be. Um, and that's the thing that we offer. And that's part of that taunting of the goodness of the gospel that transcends the best that we can come up with humanity is this. Um, but there's something better. And so that's, that, is, uh, that is the key question, and the, and the fun, I think, of making a disciple, of leading something that Jesus is watching the stool flip, and the penny drop there, they recognize, whoa. And so are we living lives in such a way that are contagious, and that a prayer that my wife and I often pray at the end of the day is, Lord, would you help us live our lives in such a way that when people look at us, they're impressed with you? I think that's the doxological life that Jesus is calling us to of and that, that happens. Like when I talk to people who became Christians, uh, it's often through their friendship and contact. Maybe from 10 years ago, they, a Christian they knew in school or someplace at work, but they knew there was something real that was going on there that unsettled them in a positive way because they knew there was something else happening there. And so I think that's the, the fun of the joy of knowing that God is using us even when we don't know it. His will is going to get done in our lives. But we can selfishly pray asking him to let us see a little bit of the fruit of that and delight in those glimpses of the pleasure of participating in our father's business and so um, may it be true of those of you who follow jesus that you would have that uh, infectious grin within you that people would say i don't know what he's on but i want a little bit of that um, and mean that in a in a great and spiritual way so thank you for sticking with me i know was, i answered questions for a long time there but um, thank you for your thoughtful questions turning it over to
0: yeah, we'll have some folks lead us in a closing song and a prayer, and then we'll be gone. And then tomorrow night, seven o'clock. Seven o'clock. Come Great. On back. Thanks so much, guys.